chapters, or we are only in the second chapter, and we're only two sermons into this book, but we have already been exposed to a lot of really powerful themes from chapter one all by itself. If you're new to us, if this is your first Sunday, it is fair for you to feel a little bit behind the gun, because um, we were in Acts chapter one, recognizing that we're getting into part two of a work that was given from a guy named Luke to a guy named Theophilus. Acts is really the second part of what he wrote to him. In the beginning of Luke chapter 1, it says, Hey, Theophilus, I've studied a lot, and so that you could have some certainty, I want to give you part 1, the Gospel of Luke. When we come to part 2, the book of Acts, we recognize that we're getting something that is supposed to understand the first work, the direction of the first work, the intentions and some of the themes of that first work, and then to have them unpack themselves in this book. So, for instance, in the uh, Gospel of Luke, we saw that the message, the way that God was at work, sort of started out in the Roman Empire and then funneled its way all the way into Jerusalem. And we noticed that the book of Acts is actually going to repeat reverse that theme. It's going to start in Jerusalem and it's going to make its way again all the way out to the ends of the world. If that were a mountain of sorts of a structure going from Rome to Jerusalem and then from Jerusalem to Rome, what happens at the top of that mountain also mattered a lot. Jesus, having died and having risen, didn't just stay a risen human being on the earth. He ascended finally as the Old Testament said that he would and took his place at the right hand of God the Father in the throne. He, the Son of Man, actually then starts to not only fulfill all these Old Testament expectations, but then deploy his mission on the earth from Jerusalem through Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. This is going to be a loaded book, and it's only taken us one chapter to already figure that out. There's a structure. There's a literary storytelling style that we tried to appreciate as we were looking at things. Not only that, but last week in particular, we had this grand introduction two weeks ago, and then we had this weird moment last week where it seemed like we just kind of entered into a staffing decision among the 12 apostles. Judas had left. And the way that Peter started to talk about Judas was borrowing all these psalms from the past and saying, man, that psalm that talks about the enemies of God and the curses that would be upon them, that was all about Judas. And at one moment, I do want to clarify something that I said last week. Because Peter's way of talking about Judas's death doesn't feel like it syncs up factually especially factually the way that our 21st century ears read a passage, we want to read it like a news report where we get all the details and we're able to take all of those details and put together an accurate depiction of what happened so that we can take all the witnesses and we can have a reporter. We kind of assume that's what Luke is supposed to do. Luke, you said you researched everything, so aren't you supposed to take all the details, put them together and give us your account with all the details and Luke says, well, actually, no, that's not the way I'm telling the story. As I was talking about the differences between the way that Luke talks about Judas's death and the way that, for instance, in particular, Matthew talks about Judas's death, I did admit there are some different details there. Now, 
One thing that we were talking about as guys on Saturday morning is that while we want to appreciate the literary genius of the storytelling styles, what I didn't mean to imply in that is that all Luke is doing is telling stories as though these are myths or metaphors designed through elegant storytelling style to only give us principles that aren't really rooted in history. Let me dismiss that if I gave that impression to you last week. This is history. We believe that the God of history, the God sovereign over history, is through the pages of scripture where he's revealed himself, revealing history, but doing that in a brilliant way. And so where Peter in particular in Luke's account last week was talking about some really gory parts of the way that Judas died. Matthew says he hung himself. Well, Judas says that his body swelled up and burst open. There are different accounts about where this field that his body came to rest in, how it was acquired. It was acquired with the 30 pieces of silver, sort of. But did Judas buy it? Or did the priests buy it using Judas's money? Maybe in a way that you'd say, the president went to war. Well, nobody thinks the president picked up a gun and went to war. But we can still say that he was the driving force behind it. There are ways of taking passages like this reconciling them well and to be a Christian that appreciates the Bible and that believes the Bible doesn't mean we have to turn a blind eye to any of those things. If you, like some of the guys when we were talking on Saturday morning, uh, find this kind of thing a little bit more fascinating, especially if you talk to people that are skeptical about the faith and use moments like this to say, see, Luke didn't know what he's talking about, which when we study everything that Luke put together is kind of laughable. He did a lot of research. He was very aware of what Matthew wrote and still chose to give the details the way that he did for a reason. But if you find these kinds of things interesting, we're going to put some links in the email to a particular set of teachings by Wayne Grudem. Uh, Ryan had listened to these a while ago, referenced them. I think that what I sent out by way of the links were the ones you found. If they're different, it's okay. They're still pretty good. So it's Wayne Grudem, the guy who wrote a systematic theology, going through his teaching on inerrancy and then taking four weeks to talk about different texts that different people find challenging like this. We'll put those links into the email so that you can kind of explore them a little bit more. But nonetheless, we just wanted to clarify something. As we're going through this and appreciating the way that this history is told, we believe it to be history. We believe these to be true accounts of reality as they took place, even though some witnesses may talk about differing details in their accounts of them. So I hope that helps you a little bit because we're about to come to a moment that begins this way, when the day of Pentecost arrived. And here's one of the difficulties of preaching to a group of people in the 21st century, many of whom have different understandings of the word Pentecost. Words matter, as I found out when I was applying for a teaching job. Because when I was applying for a teaching job and I was trying to answer questions that the school was trying to unpack, you, you, you know, my story about how I was finding my first job was a little more chaotic. I'll tell that story and have told that story before, but that's not particularly relevant. I say that it was chaotic only to excuse the mistake, the horrendous mistake that I made in filling out this form. But it turns out that the word corporal and the word capital are not the same word. 
very good to recognize the difference between corporal punishment and capital punishment. See, I was starting to teach at a time where some schools still spanked corporal punishment. And so when you encounter the word, what do you think of corporal punishment? And can you find times when it would be applicable? And you answer, well, I suppose in cases of rape or murder, <laughs> it's pretty obvious you didn't know what that word meant. And you may have been a little confused why they were asking you about the death penalty. <laughs> Capital punishment to teach middle schoolers. But nonetheless, in the sovereignty of God, I did not get that job. When the day of Pentecost arrived, that word means something. And it's very important that we get that word right. Otherwise, we can make some other comical kind of errors. To be Pentecostal, particularly in the day and age where this was being written, not 2,000 years later, after the word Pentecostal has come to mean a number of different things, some of which you might be fond of, some of which you might be skeptical of. It's probably important we go back to what actually the Feast of Weeks, which was because it was 50 days after the Feast of Passover, known to Greeks as Pentecost, the Feast of Weeks actually has meaning. It's rooted in the Old Testament. It was one of three feasts where you would go over the river and through the woods to Jerusalem's house we go. It was one of three pilgrimage feasts where you would return from where you were if you were a devout Jew in order to arrive in Jerusalem in order to be able to celebrate. Listen to the way that we read about that in Leviticus chapter 23. Uh, I think the second slide is mislabeled. It goes from 1516 to then 2122. Um, but here's the way it starts. You shall count seven full days from the day after the Sabbath. This is referring to the Pentecost, or sorry, to Passover. From the day that you brought the sheaf of the wave offering, you shall count 50 days to the day after the seventh Sabbath. Then you shall present a grain offering of new grain to the Lord. You see the allocating of time there. 49 days plus one, the 50 days that are in there is why it's called the Feast of Weeks. You're going to wait some weeks, seven of the weeks, and the word seven and the word weeks are really the same. So it's kind of a, a play on words a little bit. It's where it gets its name. Just like we think of Thanksgiving sort of starting a season, and then Christmas is going to be the end of that season. If you're making plans with people in November or December, everybody's like, let's just wait till January because you know what that's like between Thanksgiving and Christmas. Passover to Pentecost, just feel the same kind of energy as you're thinking about it. But Leviticus 23 ends then after telling some of the other details about this, this harvest feast. It is a statute forever in all your dwelling places throughout your generations. And when you reap the harvest of your land, you shall not reap your field right up to its edge, nor shall you gather the gleanings after your harvest. You shall lead them for the poor and the sojourner. Do you see the connection between the two of them? When you celebrate this feast, do so in a way that looks out for the poor. It's not just that I want you to celebrate this in a way that as regard to me as your provider, bring some of your harvest and present it back to me. But I want the way that you do that to be done in mindset then where you're mindful of 
the poor around you. So harvest it, bring me some of it, celebrate with it, but leave some for the folks who have no fields, have no right to be able to gather their own wheat because they are the ones you need to watch out for as well. Right in the very beginning, the first time we hear about this feast, what's set up for us is this. A feast that God says you shall remember throughout all your generations of Passover. The night when God showed mercy and delivered his people from death. That feast of Passover, because we know what happens in Exodus, was followed by the fact that Pharaoh was finally done in. And he tells Moses, take your people and get out of here. It's going to happen so fast, you won't even have time for the bread to rise. And so the feast of Passover was followed by the feast of unleavened bread. And so that was a feast you were to remember too. Not only that the Lord on one night showed you mercy and freedom from death, but he then also showed you freedom from slavery. Every year you're supposed to remember that, that the Lord showed mercy and delivered you from death. The Lord showed mercy and delivered you from Egypt. And then 50 days later, he delivered you to a good land where there were fields you didn't plant and houses you didn't build. You were getting the work of somebody else there and you're going to go into the land and when you're there, celebrate that harvest by reminding I did that too. Pentecost to the Feast of Unleavened Bread to the Feast of Pentecost, or to the Feast of Pentecost, right? So that's the rhythm that, that we get. In fact, so important was remembering that rhythm that this is one of the things you were supposed to say when you celebrated the Feast of Weeks or Pentecost. This is from Deuteronomy chapter 26. A wandering Aramean was my father. He went down into Egypt and sojourned there. You might get that they're not just talking about their dad. This is a reference back to Abraham. He went down to Egypt and sojourned there, few in number, and he became a great nation, might, great, mighty, and populous. And the Egyptians treated us harshly and humiliated us and laid on us hard labor. It's apparently, he's not just talking about Abraham. He's talking about the Abraham who turned into Isaac, who turned into Jacob, who turned into the 70 of Jacob, with his name now changed to Israel's relatives. Those 70 went down into Egypt, and then after being treated harshly, the Lord heard our voice and saw our affliction, our toil, and our oppression. And the Lord brought us, which is now not a group of 70, but a group of two and a half million. He brought us out of Egypt with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm and with great deeds of terror, with signs and wonders. And he brought us into this place and gave us this land, a land flowing with milk and honey. And behold, now I bring the first of the fruit of the ground, which you, O Lord, have given me. So if you think I'm making too strong a connection between Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread and the Feast of Pentecost, I'm getting that burden from what they were told to say every single time. This was supposed to be almost like a Christmas carol, a Pentecost carol, if you want to call it that. It was the thing to recite whenever you were doing this so that you would remember, not just, oh, look, we've got all this food. It's God brought us to Egypt. God delivered us from Egypt. God has brought us to this land so that freedom from death and freedom from slavery would also always bring a harvest. That's the Jewish psyche year after year after year after year. So we read when the day of Pentecost came. But how do you read those words? Now, 
forgive my attempt at this, and Trevor, we're going to have to go back a slide or two, but there's two. I think you can figure out which one I'm going to be referring to here. If I were to sing this, when the day of Pentecost came, ba 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 You'd feel something, right? Because you know, oh, you're going to talk about Pentecost, but you're not just going to talk about Pentecost. You're going to be talking about Pentecost, and you're going to be making Lord of the Rings analogies the rest of the way through this thing, right? All right, well, I got that one in my head. Give me a brief second. What if I read it this way? Um, you know, golly, now I can't do Star Wars in my head. Somebody's got to do Star Wars. But what if you saw this graphic? And you heard us saying, um, Joe, you got, you got Star Wars? Somebody got Star Wars for us? It's so hard, right? Or in the dark voice, when the day of Pentecost came. And blah, 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 right? There are, there are echoes that are there when we watch certain movies and we see certain themes and we, or if we think about some movies, right? Like the Lord of the Rings in particular, everybody's got their own soundtrack. So when you hear these different musical themes coming out, you're like, oh, I know what you're talking about. This is a written work. We don't get a soundtrack. You can get off of that. There we go. Back. <laughs> but in the same way, I want to suggest to you that the way Luke is going to tell this story is no less powerful in that he's going to try and use language about describing what happened on this Pentecost in order to do the same kind of brain-teasing hyperlinks back to stories from the past. He's going to be trying to tell us about Pentecost so that you're thinking about and hearing Old Testament themes that are coming through. And you're like, wait, whoa, 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 whoa. I hear that music. Are you trying to tell me that these are connected? And Luke's like, oh, you're getting it. That's what he's going to do in the way that he tells us this story. The way he recounts history with style. If you did the study through, uh, you, through your community group this last week, uh, and if you didn't, it's okay. We'll put the link to that study in there as well. What I was trying to do through that study was to get you thinking about some of those Old Testament themes and asking, is that what Luke is trying to do as he's telling you? And in case you were wondering about the hint, yes, it is exactly what he's trying to do. So let's reread here, and we're going to kind of notice three themes that come out in this. The first is the empowering of God's witnesses. We read again in verse one. When the day of Pentecost came, when the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place. And suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind. And it filled the entire house where they were sitting. Job chapter 38. Then the Lord answered Job out of the whirlwind and said, or in Ezekiel chapter 1, And I looked, behold, a stormy wind came out of the north, and a great cloud with brightness around it, and flashing fire continuing forth in the midst of the fire. And then Luke using some of that language, verse 3, And divided tongues as a fire appeared to them and rested on each one of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Exodus chapter 40, what Tracy read for us. Then the cloud covered the tent of meeting. 
and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. Moses was not able to enter the tent of meeting because the cloud settled on it and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. That, that's the theme. Two themes that he is bringing together in this first few verses to try and say, are you guys hearing this? Are you hearing what I'm trying to tell you is happening in this very moment? Because in this very moment, I want you to think back to Moses' life. Moses, the, the terrible guy with this horrible temper, chased out of Egypt despite the life that God had rescued him from and brought him into, trained up in Moses' house, learning about Egyptian law and trying to figure out how to govern. A, then his temper gets the best of him. He kills a guy and he gets chased out of... He gets married. He finds somebody. It's nice. But then one day... A bush is burning, but not. And as he encounters the God who's revealing himself through this fire, God says, you come back to this mountain when you've gone and gotten my people. Small story about how he goes and gets the people and brings them back. But when he goes and gets them and brings them back, who should happen to be there but God? How do you know God's there? Look at the top of the mountain. What are you seeing? A great thunder, lightning, flame storm up at the top. It's kind of volcanic and kind of not. Kind of reminiscent of some of the ways that God got people out of Egypt. You worship the sun god, the god of light? Oh, that's cute. Dark. fiery hail falling on them almost from somewhere that you really can't quite figure out and now the slaves come back and they're like whoa 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 whoa, Moses we've heard you talk about this God you met who like could could make a um, bush be on fire <laughs> but like that's a whole mountain dude you go up because if we go up we're gonna die they're not wrong God revealing himself using the glory from heaven in physical, non-consuming kind of form has always been difficult for God's people to describe. The prophets get to heaven and they notice things that just blow them away. And, and it's very hard to be able to describe what's going on there. That glory shows up in a bunch of different places throughout the Bible. And this is one of them. But this is different because the God of the bush and the God of the mountain told them to build a tent and then God leaves the mountain and comes on the tent. And then later in time, when Solomon sets up a temple, he leaves the tent and sets up on a different mountain over a different building. And because of the unfaithfulness of the people, at some point he has to pick up and leave the whole temple. What a devastating day. From the first day when they left the mountain where they met God, Moses had said, if you're not with us, don't send us. Because this isn't going to work unless we have the evidence of your presence with us. And since then, he went in the tent. And since then, he was on the mountain. But then, because God's people were just so incapable of keeping the covenant from that first mountain, he left to be replaced by foreign kings. And now the Romans seem to be the force over Jerusalem. And even before Jesus left, part of their question was, God, are you going to restore the kingdom? 
Are you going to do this? Are you going to bring it back? Are you going to somehow bring your present rain back to the earth? Are you going to do the fire thing again? Now, oddly enough, the disciples had a moment like this where they recognized something about Jesus, didn't they? They, on a mountain with Jesus, just a few of them, saw that fire set over Jesus in a way that was difficult to describe. He became radiant like the way that prophets had described what it was like to go to heaven and to look at God. There's now a human being, Jesus Christ, is actually carrying the presence of God on him. And they get the idea, oh, you're like God, or you are God, or something. This is mind-blowing for me. How much more mind-blowing for these apostles than would this moment be? Where they're saying, okay, Jesus, who became the temple on the earth and had the presence of God on him, said, we're supposed to wait here because power is going to come. But not, <laughs> not this kind of power. Not the power that could hold back the Egyptian army when the Israelites were trapped at the Red Sea. And Luke's saying, yeah. That power, that's what we're talking about. So that Jesus, when he was on a different mountain, could say to a woman he had met by a well, tell me about your life. And she's like, I'd rather talk about mountains if that's okay. You're all about your mountain. We're all about our mountain. Which mountain is it really? And Jesus is like, yeah, it's not about mountains. Trust me, the day is coming. This is not going to be about mountains anymore. When John the Baptist first sees Jesus and he's like, I'm baptizing, I'm using water. He's going to baptize, he's going to use fire. All of that, every theme coming and crashing down over top of each of these folks. But not like lightning flashes of fire, but tongues of fire. Which you could think of being just sort of a metaphoric way of saying, like, maybe it's like a little flame of fire. Like, I don't know how many times have you look at a candle and you're like, oh, look at the way that that flame is licking the candle. Boy, that looks a lot like a tongue. Yeah, I didn't find that commentary particularly compelling either. Although I read that in a couple commentaries. You know how flames look like tongues. Sure. I'm on fire. I don't know. It didn't really reach out to me and grab me until I read about the account in Isaiah where Isaiah is the one who meets God, is amazed by and bowled over by the presence of God because the, the temple is shaking and the train of God's road is filling the temple and everything's going on and the angels are just like, he is holy, he is holy, holy, holy. And so I got to fly with a couple of my wings, but the rest of what I got, I got to be covered because he's just that holy. And what does Isaiah say next? Oh, unholy, unholy, all of us, unholy. And an angel comes, and rather than when the holy meets the unholy, like in the Levitical law, the 
holy comes from the altar and the, the holiness of God meets the unholiness of Isaiah. And not does the, it's, it's not as though Isaiah is so powerfully unholy that now the altar, the, the, the coal becomes unholy itself. Like, oh, I've contaminated it. No, it's reversed. This comes and takes away sin so that the angel can say your sin is atoned for. And what's next? Who will speak for me? Who will use their tongue for me? You've been cleansed here. So who will now use what has been cleansed as a witness for me? Do you see Luke? Hmm? Right? We should feel this where you just, you can almost end right here and you just know what's going to happen next. You just know what's going to happen. If the Holy Spirit shows up on them, what's going to happen? Well, if this was Marvel or DC, they'd get radioactive superpowers and heat vision and stuff like that, right? They'd be able to fly, right? Oh, it's amazing. I've got heavenly power. No, no, no. Heavenly power is going to show up so that God's people can be witnesses. Here's what becomes a supernatural part of your new existence, your capacity to speak. It and don't worry, I'm not saying everybody needs to become extroverts who love doing public speaking. But all of us, James says, are condemned by our tongues. And now all of us, given the capacity to be redeemed through our tongues. So that what we share doesn't have to be something that condemns us, but now we're empowered for it. Here's the problem. It's 1116. Barb is going to share about what's going on in Nepal. Here we go, okay? Second point, the enabling. And since they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance, now there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven. And at the sound, the multitude came together and they were bewildered because each one was hearing them speaking in his own Language. This is what's going to happen. The word tongue is the word language, which is actually why, interestingly enough, Bob, you read one thing and we actually saw a different, they didn't know how to translate because sometimes they translate tongue, sometimes they translate language, right? We speak this way a little bit, right? Russia is my mother tongue, right? That would, Val and Jenny, if they were with us, that would be the way he would share it, I think, right there, right? We're not, he doesn't have two, you know, mouth organs. He would speak a different language. That's exactly the way the word is used here. And so they're amazed and astonished, saying, Are not all these who are speaking Galilean? And how is it that we hear each of us in his own native language? And Bob read these so eloquently, you don't even need to hear it from me. So I'm just going to skip over them. You're welcome, Bob. <laughs> Apparently, in a passage talking about God empowering us to speak well, I gave you this. So, yeah, it was kind. Here's what's amazing about that description of every language that these Jewish exiles are hearing. These aren't folks who live in Jerusalem. They're not folks who live in Galilee. They're not folks who are living all the kind of native language that's right around there with its native dialects. They're hearing the gospel being proclaimed in all the lands that they were exiled out to. Because at the time when God had left his temple... God's people had left the land. And so 
one of these pilgrimage feasts would be one of the three opportunities each year that the devout Jews would return back. And it was those faithful to the regular rhythm of returning that were blessed in this occasion. And so all of them from basically what Luke would be describing is the, the broader known world where all the exiles had been scattered. In fact, there's an Old Testament reference. You might have remembered this from the study guide that was pointing to the fact that all those places where they had been scattered, they would return from there. He will raise a signal for the nations and will assemble the banished of Israel and gather dispersed of Judah from the four corners of the earth. The descriptions match up. Luke is referencing that point and saying, this is the moment that that has happened. You, you, you get all of these different references, right? All of them, verse 11, are hearing them tell in our own tongues the mighty works of God. So you've got Isaiah encountering God, atoned for sin, speaking. And that same pattern where the holiness of God no longer set up in a building or in a city will actually be set up over the individual temples of the Holy Spirit. Mind-blowing. Now, interestingly enough, if we went back to the history of when this was actually recorded, Acts was probably assembled after Paul had already used this language. Paul had said on one occasion, hey, your, your, your personal body, it's a temple. So don't mess around sexually. In another occasion, he had said, all of you, when you get together, a temple. So how you handle trouble within your midst matters. That was language Paul had already used. And Luke is just backing up, kind of telling the story before that of why Paul's metaphor wasn't just metaphorical. It was, in fact, quite literal. Your temple wasn't a place you go to. It's a place you take with you. And we gathered together in this setting, become a corporate bringing together individual hot coals that now when they come together, increase and enhance and create their own unique flame going away and then coming back, going away and then coming back. We become the empowered temples of God, but not just to showcase our fire, but enabled to become witnesses, just like Jesus had said. You stay, you remain, you wait, so you get power to be my witnesses, just like Isaiah. But here's what happens next. It's the same thing that has been happening every time God has been at work. Not only are the witnesses empowered and not only are they enabled then to be witnesses, but there are various explanations given. Look at the way that this unpacks. Verse 12, all were amazed and perplexed, saying to each other, what does this mean? There should be no other way that we would expect this moment because this moment has never happened before in human history. Never before has the God of creation who has taken up residence in bushes and mountains and tents and cities decided he was actually going to take up residence in this exact permanent way in people. It should be amazing. 
It should be perplexing, but sadly, we also find that it's unbelieved. There are others mocking who said they're just drunks. They're just filled with new wine. But then one of those witnesses, one of those fallen and restored witnesses, one of those afraid and perplexed but recently empowered witnesses stands up and Peter starts to witness. He actually does what he says. He stands with the 11 and lifts his voice and addresses them and says, Men of Judea and all who dwell in Jerusalem, let this be known to you and give ear to my words. For these people are not drunk, as you suppose, but it's only the third hour of the day. But this is what was uttered through the prophet Joel. And in the last days it shall be, declares, God declares, that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. And your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. And he continues on. We're going to pause here in the speech by Peter. We're going to pick it up again in two weeks. We're following along, as you know, with the children's ministry curriculum. And the children's ministry curriculum is going to pause with us over Galatians chapter 5 to talk about another way that the Holy Spirit is at work in as powerful a way among his people, not in a fiery way, but in a tree and fruit, an organic kind of way. Then in two weeks, we're going to pick up with kind of where Paul is or where Peter has left here. But I want to point out one thing that he points out from Joel. Because Peter standing there doesn't really give into or is swayed by the amazement around him. And he doesn't give into nor be swayed by the mockers around him. But he cares for both of them. And he decides to listen to a third voice. Peter decides to listen to what God said about this in the first place. And he says, this is what the Holy Spirit is doing right now he's being poured out into us we're gonna have a lot of time to talk about our role as witnesses in the world but i want to say this you can't witness to something you haven't seen you can't testify to something you haven't experienced and i think the day-by-day battle that all of us face this is connected to the book that that uh, um that Keith quoted from called Friendship with God, which is a great book, by the way. If you want one, let me know. We'll find a way to get you one. But one of the main things that we've been talking about lately is just how hard it is for us to truly believe that God loves us. We're called, we know, to tell the world that God loves the world. For God so loved the world that he gave. We got it. But isn't it hard to be an enthusiastic witness for something you believe to be true for other people, but not for yourself? Isn't it hard to be zealous about something that you find to be kind of distant? The chapters we looked at last night in that book, when we were talking, they reminded us that the main duty of a Christian is to tell yourself over and over, day by day that God loves you in such a way that you're supposed to know that it's unknowable. You're supposed to search out the limitless boundaries of the love of God. 
over and over, these two chapters just reminded us of what I think Luke is getting at here as well. Because earlier, Paul had said similar language. He said the following, we rejoice in our sufferings. Knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope, and hope does not put us to shame. And if you've ever suffered, you're like, that's a fat lie. That's not the way I suffer at all. Nice try, Paul. Great motivational speech, Paul. But when I suffer, it doesn't make me endure. It doesn't work great things into my character, and it certainly doesn't produce hope. And at the end of the day, I feel kind of ashamed because that's not the process I've just known. Paul's like, actually, I wasn't done. Let me tell you why all of that can be true. Hope doesn't put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who's been given to us. You hear the same language Joel used? That Peter just used? As we cannot witness about a truth that we don't believe. We can't go and do our duty to share the gospel to the ends of the earth if we don't believe that God truly actually does love us. And so what I want us to remember before we dive into the mission and hear Peter explain the mission and and continue on in our time in Acts 2 is to remember just this. God loves you. 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 You that is just so very different from all the people you admire. You that is so very different from the dreams you had about who you were going to be. He doesn't love that theoretical version of you. He loves you. And if you could give yourself to the pursuit of remembering that, just trying to be refreshed and remember that every single day, if we could continue faithfully as a church when you guys come each week for us to just greet you with songs and truth that reminds you that you've been loved by God and you haven't just been historically loved by God, but you are presently loved by God. If the Holy Spirit could be at work pouring out the love of God into our hearts that way, it would be interesting to see what would flow up out of us, wouldn't it? So here's two things to remember before I invite Barb up. The first is don't overlook the obedient waiting of God's witnesses. I say it this way. Jesus had said, stay and wait. And they did. And they were blessed. But not only is it those who stayed and wait that were blessed, but through them, all the devout Jews that hadn't stayed home but actually came were blessed. It is easy in our day to dismiss the regular gathering together for fellowship and encouragement. And while it's true that there were many Pentecosts when this didn't happen, it was in the midst of the regular rhythm of being faithful to come that it did. So let's not overlook the obedient waiting and gathering of God's witnesses. But secondly, I asked you, this one says first as well. Maybe it's also important. So, who made these slides? I asked you in, in uh, a couple, of, do you read this book descriptively about the past or prescriptively about what should happen? It's easy at a moment like this, a historical moment like this, to read it as nothing but descriptive. But Barb's going to come and share 
And I want us to just all kind of take the disposition of not dismissing the ongoing work of God's witness in the world today. So with that said, let me pray to close our time and then invite Barb up so that she can share about what's going on in Nepal right now. Father, we're grateful for your love for us. But we're really not grateful for your love for us. We're really forgetful about your love for us. We're grateful when we sin. We're grateful when we don't do what we ought to have done. That you still love us even at those moments. But Lord, we're forgetful when we sin. And we're forgetful when we don't do what we ought to have done. That you love us. So I just pray for our church, Lord, that you would make us more aware and more grateful that you love us. Would you do that by pouring your spirit out into us? Do that by pouring your spirit out into us whenever we put down our phones and pick up your word. Do that whenever you pour out your spirit into us when we decide not to do other things, but we instead decide to get together so we can encourage others. Or do this when we are so ashamed of who we've become that we can't envision that you could possibly love us even then, Lord, interrupt those moments in our heads so that we can be grateful once again that you love us. Pour out, we pray, your spirit on us. In the mighty name of Jesus. The mighty name of Jesus. Amen.